climate change is actually a cultural issue, not a scientific issue. Science has been extremely good um, at identifying uh, the symptoms um, and uh, looking at the uh, way in which it has manifested itself. Um, but it hasn't really addressed any of the issues in terms of the causes. It has tried to use um, what you might call techno-fix solution focused problem-based approaches to the situation rather than actually asking deep questions and listening. Another episode of the Conscient Podcast. I'm with uh, David Haley, who's in the UK. Hello, David. Hello there. Really good to see you, Claude. Yes, well, we're, we haven't met, but uh, I know about your work, and, and I've actually quoted you in my episode 19 because I, I really enjoyed the way you, you uh, articulated things, and then I read more of your work, and so I'm really happy that we have a moment here to, to talk about some of the issues around art and climate change and ecological art specifically. Artist David Haley. We now need aesthetics to sensitize us to other ways of life. And we need artists to sensitize us to the shape of things to come. But maybe we can start by, just by a little self-introduction. I'll, I'll do a link to your bio so people can know more. But basically, who are you, David Haley? Where do you, where do you come from and what do you do? Okay. Um, so uh, uh, I'm an artist who uh, makes work with ecology. Um, since 1992, um, my practice has focused um, almost entirely on um, climate change, as it was then called, uh, species extinction and cultural extinction. Um, I, I work with communities, I work with academia, um, I work with anybody who wants to uh, try and understand these issues um, and act upon them. Well, you, you've been active uh, writing, and but I think you're also a teacher, or at least you're uh, uh, somebody who works in, in helping people understand the, these issues. So maybe we can start with uh, your response to some of the issues that I raised in, in my reality episode around the notion of reality itself, its relationship to denial, and also ecological grief. Uh, just some starting thoughts on, on and in particular, around reality. Um, reality is a good issue. Um, again, it's particularly related to, uh, to, to, to climate change, let's call it that for now. Mm -hmm. um, when I first got involved with, with this issue, um, uh, it only seemed to be about um, science, politics, uh, uh, with a little economics thrown in. Um, and I remember from something called Agenda 21, which came out of the, uh, the Rio summit in 1992, um, there were three pillars, um, which were, and these were the, uh, the pillars of sustainable development. Um, and that was uh, social, economic, and environmental. Um, it's interesting using um, architectural metaphor of pillars, 
because in fact what they missed was the lintel horizontal bar that goes across the top and that's culture uh, because in my opinion uh, climate change is actually a cultural issue not a scientific issue science has been extremely good um, at identifying uh, the symptoms um, and uh, looking at the uh, way in which it has manifested itself. Um, but it hasn't really addressed any of the issues in terms of the causes. Uh, and also, in my opinion, um, it has tried to use um, what you might call techno-fix solution-focused problem-based approaches to the situation rather than actually asking deep questions and listening. And why would culture have been left out? I've heard that many times that, or at least culture doesn't play the role that it's not been left out because there are lots of artists and cultural workers working on the issue, but why is it not taking its rightful place, do you think? Um, I think that's partly because of a misunderstanding of culture itself. Um, culture is not just about art. Mm -hmm. Culture is actually, and here we go to the reality, the start of your question. <laughs> um, reality and culture uh, are embedded in each other. Mm. They are the belief systems that human beings carry. It doesn't matter which society you are in or you come from. Uh, your culture is how you believe the world is. It's your worldview. And it's your worldview that carries through to um, how you then manage the rest of your life um, and how you see yourself within the world. Fair enough. Well, I, one of the reasons I bring it up in my research is that I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Zen Buddhist, and we deal with reality all the time, you know, and, and in a way that the moment is the only moment is the only thing that we can experience. But metaphorically, when you look at people's inability to, to seize and do something about the reality of the climate emergency, that's where it becomes problematic for me because a lot of people are not, not that they're not aware, like you say, that science is there, the information is there, but somehow culturally in terms of their lives, they're not able to, to, to wrestle with the complexity of the climate emergency. And so that's one of the reasons that I've been and, and personally, also, I needed to go through a, a process of ecological grief because I feel it in my body. I feel that the loss of species, and you talk about extinction, you know, both species extinction, and I assume human extinction is on, you, on your <laughs> radar as well, because it, uh, yes, you know, but, so maybe you could talk about that some more. Um, but the connection there is the cultural extinction, mm -hmm. um, the way in which belief systems um, have been erased. Um, it's very popular these days to talk about uh, indigenous knowledge uh, and decolonializing uh, the way in which we think and work. Um, and a lot of that arises, I believe, from what I refer to as cultural erasure. Um, in other words, the way in which peoples in different communities around the world think differently. It, just as much as uh, we talk about biodiversity, cultural diversity is of equal importance. The monoculture that uh, exists 
largely through the recent propensity of um, media monoculture and erases our ability to think beyond the digital medium. And in fact, um, to a certain extent, I understand some of your Buddhist um, philosophies and, and belief systems. Um, I probably practice nearer to Taoist beliefs, which are uh, complementary, should we say. Um, and to live in the moment um, is absolutely the only place we can be. However, living in the moment also implies context. And that context is actually uh, a continuum from past through the present to the future. So it's not the, pu the, um, the present being in this microsecond of me uttering these words. Uh, the present is actually a longer um, concept. I mean, you can go back to Stuart Brand's um, Buck of the Long Now for that kind of reference. My dream, as then teacher David Loy suggests, is that one day we can realize our non-duality with nature and begin to live in ways that accord with that realization. Well, we could talk a long time about these philosophical <laughs> perspectives, and I find them useful as a, as a grounding uh, to to figure out what then to do and to act. So you kind of have to step back in order to move forward. But sure. I, I just wanted to to mention that when I when I uh, heard about your writing, it was in relation to uh, an event called Becoming Earthly, and you wrote a piece called Going Beyond Earthly. And I use a little quote from in the uh, in the podcast of something you said. Uh, we need aesthetics to sensitize us to other ways of life, and we need artists to sensitize us to the shape of things to come. Uh, and I just took a little clip out of a much larger thing, but it, it really got to me, right? I said, yes, uh, we, we, there's an aesthetic side, and there's a sort of a forecasting or a, a speculation that artists can do. So maybe you could talk a bit more about your, your work uh, in ecological art. What is it and, and how does it sort of fit into the, uh, the contributions that the arts can and must make to the ecological crisis? Okay, can we take the word must out of there? Yeah, sure. Uh, must is out. <laughs> I, uh, no, it's, it's, it's just that um, it, it's not for me to dictate Fair to enough. other artists how they work and what they should do. Yeah, nor, nor I. Good, thank you. <laughs> um, however, um, I recognize that artists, and we can only talk in generalities here apart from my own personal practice, um, but uh, artists are also um, citizens in the world and constrained by many of the um, issues that everybody is constrained by. Um, the art world, art education, uh, universities teaching of art. Um, we now see, I mean, uh, even across the uh, Eastern world, it is now dominated by the Western canon of art, um, which takes particular philosophies and a particular focus that actually um, I try to break from. Um, I recognize it, I've studied it for many years, um, 
but the constraints on my cognitive abilities to actually react and respond to what I see as the most pressing urgencies uh, makes it very difficult. So um, from what I see as an eco-pedagogue, <laughs> um, many students of art still produce representational art about climate change, about species extinction, rather than being directly engaged with the issues and directly involved in them. So that's um, kind of one reflection on the way in which the art world takes the subject matter. Um, I remember particularly um, in 2009, um, COP15 in Stockholm. And prior to that, um, there had been four years of um, immense um, uh, funding support, um, uh, different uh, things going on to try and promote artists uh, and the cultural sector uh, to be involved in trying to change the minds of uh, political leaders. Uh, of course, COP15 was a complete and utter disaster. And I can remember seeing many of the artists uh, who had taken up the cause uh, at that time falling away very, very quickly uh, because um, it was you know, like holding a hot potato. They didn't want to know it anymore. Um, I think in terms of where we are now, there's been a much deeper and longer trajectory of a new generation of artists um, who actually understand and have grown up with these issues. Um, I hope that when we get to COP26 in Glasgow this year, um, that whatever the outcome, that they will pursue their practices um, as they wish, um, and that the whole of humanity <laughs> looks to actually addressing these issues. I remember once uh, somebody on the Eco Art Network saying, David, we can't possibly, as artists, save the world. Um, and I just replied, well, actually, as a human being, this is what we need to do. Artist Lance Garavi. While individual works of art, however genius may have value, they won't do the trick. What we need is for all art to be about climate change. And with whatever skill set we have. Uh, I just happen to be an artist. Yeah, and, and artists uh, are good at speculative fiction. They're good at um, lateral connections between different uh, complexities. They're good at metaphor. There's all kinds of, uh, yeah. of, of things that artists and, and are doing. And you know, and when I say must, I, I, I say it with, uh, with the respect that uh, of, of artistic freedom and I've had conversations uh, about that with some of my colleagues who say, well, you can't tell artists what to do. No, but you can make it easier for them to have more impact. <laughs> and those who want to be, you know, I use the word education because I'm self-educating myself through this podcast sure, sure. and other ways. Uh, it's not that hard to find the knowledge 
that's there. Um, I know the Echo and Arts Network is going to publish a book soon with lots of information. There's those, those kinds of tools, but then you have to have the time, right? Because uh, the, a lot of artists are struggling to make a living. And so, so how can I take on climate change when I can barely pay the rent, you know, especially now with COVID? Well, yeah, one of the things there is, I mean, um, when it comes to being an artist, uh, for me anyway, uh, it wasn't a career choice. Right. Uh, I couldn't help it. we've done well (laughs) it's just well I I don't know financially I'd have done a lot better being a scientist I was quite good at that at school Um, I was quite good at engineering I was quite good at math Um, and yeah there's lots of other things if I actually wanted to make money that I could have done Um, but in terms of my actual practice as well um, what I have learned to do and this is my practice um, is actually to focus on making space. Um, and this became clear to me when I read um, Leela, uh, An Inquiry into Morals by Robert Piercig. Towards the end of the book, um, he suggests that the most moral act of all uh, is to create the space for life to move onwards. Hmm. Um, and it was one of those sentences that just uh, rang true with me, and I've, I've held on to that ever since and pursued uh, the making of space, not the filling of it. <laughs> so when I say um, I work with ecology, I try to work with um, whole systems, ecosystems. So the things within an ecosystem um, are the elements with which I try to work. I try not to um, introduce anything other than what is already there. Um, in other words, making the space as habitat for new ways of thinking, um, habitat for biodiversity to enrich itself, um, habitat for other ways of, of approaching things. Uh, I mean, there's an old scientific adage about uh, nature abhors a vacuum. And that vacuum is the space as I see it. So um, in terms of where I am at my age in my career, Mm -hmm. um, I see that a lot of what the early eco artists set out to do has actually been achieved. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't need to be made further aware. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the world knows Mm -hmm. that climate change exists. They know of its perils. Some people are actually experiencing those disasters regularly as a normal way of living. Mm. Um, What we need to be able to do um, is to move on from that and, in my opinion, um, facilitate, support, encourage the younger generation to be able to ask new questions to be able to move forward from where we are now. Activist Naomi Klein. What the climate needs to avoid collapse is a contraction in humanity's use of resources. And what our economic model demands to avoid collapse is unfettered expansion. Only one of these sets of rules can be changed, and it's not the laws of nature. 
in their own way and with with whichever collaborators they choose to work with because totally. there's, a, there's a lot more i mean my I, I use the example of my daughter studying science now and but who's very fluid across and her and her generation are very fluid across uh, fields of of activity they're more literate than i will ever be just because of the access to information that they've had and and also the sense of need i mean you need to know a lot to be uh, not just have a job in life but to actually be relevant you know to be yes. impactful and so I'm glad that you're you're an educator because uh, <laughs> that's that's a role that ma- many of us play in one way or another in in teaching but also as you said earlier listening to uh, what is what different generations have to say and then kind of pulling it together yeah I also think I agree we're beyond the the awareness phase some are even before awareness but most of us are on on the cusp of awareness and action or awareness something indefinable in action because uh, an unreflected action, you know, well, I've done my part, I've recycled my, you know, plastic that's actually going into landfill, not very helpful, though the process of engaging with an act is useful, but then what is the real impact? So here in Canada, we're talking about uh, activating uh, in a much more uh, organized way, the way the UK has in in many ways with with Julie's Bicycle and Creative Carbon Scotland and all the organizations that you have there uh, uh, that, that are very, very well structured. So, and I'm glad you've already answered many of my questions in terms of what we need to do. You know, you don't have to repeat it over and over. It's it's pretty straightforward that people need to look at themselves and and figure out where they mo- mo- can contribute w- most uh, honestly and most with the most uh, uh, effectiveness. And that might be at the voting booth. It might be through their art practice. It might be in the way that they associate themselves uh, in their mm-hmm. communities and in local local activities. Uh, David Haley, is there anything else you wanted to add? Because I, I'm I'm so enriched already by what you've said. Thank you. It was well. It was interesting that um, also uh, the the use of the metaphors of war. Mm-hmm. Um, the work that I did, Greenhouse Britain, with Helen May Harrison and Newton Harrison. Um, there was a, a lovely man, scientist, phoned up one evening and said, David, um, look, we're already doing managed retreat. Uh, we, we know about sea level rise and, and um, the government has already put managed retreat into place. So, you know, what are you bringing that's new? And I said, well, we've changed the metaphor. Managed retreat is an engineering war set of metaphors. What we're doing is graceful withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. (laughs) Well, uh, the idea, the word grace um, also means becomingness. um, And it also has aesthetic uh, overtones to it, which is kind of bringing those two together is nice, I think. Um, And withdrawal rather than retreat. (laughs) So um, it's doing it on on one's own terms as a self-determined way rather than a reaction to a disaster. Um, that started to set off uh, the way in which one might approach these things. Um, however, um, I also think that um, your colleagues and friends um, are slightly using rose-colored glasses in terms of uh, the rallying cries of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, there were many artists who were, in fact, depicting very dystopian images. I mean, I just talk about John Nash for one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think 
what um, your colleague was actually referring to was the jingoistic uh, wartime posters mm-hmm. uh, that were designed. Um, in fact, uh, an old friend of mine, um, uh, Games, uh, was one of the main artists who was commissioned to design the posters. Um, but they, 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 were, they came from a media, um, and it's still the media that is shaping, unfortunately, present culture in that respect. Uh, so artists are still left potentially with a dystopian perspective. Um, and I think going back to reality, one of the issues uh, that we are not tackling is that we're taking um, a dystopian view upon our individual activities uh, that creates um, guilt syndromes and neuroses, um, which, of course, means that the systems of power are working. Um, And in terms of... um, actually addressing the power, speaking truth to power, mm-hmm. um, we need to name the names. We need to name Standard Oil and RG Farben, mm-hmm. who now call themselves Esso, Chevron, Mobil, DuPont, BP, mm-hmm. uh, Bayer, Monsanto, mm-hmm. Basef, uh, Pfizer, and so on. These are the people that control the governments that we think we're voting for and the pretense of democracy that follows them. Until those organizations actually uh, rescind their power to a regenerational way of doing and thinking, um, we're stuffed, (laughs) Mm -hmm. put it bluntly. Oh, I hear you. I'm speaking later today with the filmmaker Jennifer Abbott, who worked on the film The Corporation and The New Corporation. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, which is really brilliant work about the 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 unfathomable, uh, the unbelievable, let's say, uh, influence and power that corporations have over our lives, much more than people are aware. Uh, yes. The, both in their legal and their relationships to government and power. Yeah. So that that's I mean it's terrifying what you're saying because it, the 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 magnitude of change is so overwhelming for an yes. individual, but yes. then maybe that individual shouldn't get caught up in their own. I like the word guilt you use, you know, of, yes. of my my personal dystopia, and to think more collectively. Uh, how can collective voices uh, make a difference? And you don't have to be extinction rebellion necessarily, though that is a movement. That's a choice. But there 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 are different paths. For, for people to be uh, active and protest the destruction oh, yeah. of our planet, which is what's happening. Yeah, again, di- diversity is, is uh, the key word. Hmm. Um, the one thing p- possibly that um, such organizations as uh, Climate Emergency Unit and so on could follow is actually to unite because hmm. a lot of energy is actually spent in... Uh, disparate actions um, and multiplying the same actions. Whereas um, if all these organizations actually united, they might actually present um, a force for power. 
Well, I think that's the intention. Uh, you might be referring to Seth Klein's book, A Good War, and the, the, the climate emergency unit that he set up. And, and there are other similar activities, but that's one I'm involved yeah. in yeah. personally. Uh, and the idea is to, to sure, rally. Sure. And the word rally can be problematic, but, but in, the, in the best sense of rallying, <laughs> uh, to bring together people of like mind and to unite. I don't know if it's uniting yet, but it's certainly coordinating efforts mm -hmm. across sectors economic sectors, policy, and arts and culture is one of the sectors that he and others are interested in mobilizing. And the word mobilization implies simply moving forward in, in some kind of concerted way. Sure. Um, and and I, I think that's happening. And it's also happening in the U.S. Uh, more so than it was under the previous government. So there's a window of time. They, they keep saying, you know, it's 10 years, but it, it really, the next few years are critical, which is one yeah. of the reasons I... I you know, retired and chose to work on this full time because there's there's work that we can do that can be very impactful. And I love what you said about uh, creating space for life to move forward. That's exactly what I am feeling. I don't know if I'm thinking it now that I've heard the words, I connect the words with my emotions, but that's what I'm feeling it needs to be done. Law Professor Shalanda Baker. Will we redesign systems to replicate the current structures of power and control? Or will we reimagine our systems to benefit those who are so often left out of discussions regarding systems design? Yeah, it, it's also perhaps uh, as an addition to the idea of rallying is mm -hmm. emancipation. Mm. Okay. Uh, because um, all of the different sectors that you've talked about um, still retain um, white man's power. Mm. Um, and it would be good to see greater connection, genuine connection for the emancipation of you know, people of color, people of different uh, ethnicities, um, actually being engaged in this stuff. Uh, but I think many of them feel disenfranchised uh, by academia, by the arts world, um, by politics per se. Um, and by governments. Um, so again, it's through the emancipation of peoples across the planet that I think we might be able to work towards uh, a united regeneration. With a bit of luck. Writer, Rebecca Solnit. Hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen and that in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. Yeah, and a lot of effort and and yeah. circumstance. I mean, some, nobody, well, some might have seen COVID coming, but but it came as a surprise to most of the world population. And and now we're talking about just recovery. We're talking about concepts yeah. that uh, are very powerful. In fact, you know, one of the thing, one of the quotes in my 
reality program is Rebecca Solnit talking about uncertainty or incertitude, you know, which yeah. is a concept that artists are very familiar with, right? Because you don't quite know where you're going with an artwork, and, and, and yet you know it's going to move in a certain direction. Yes. Uh, I, I find some comfort in that, but uh, I like the, the idea of emancipation in, a, in, a, in the broadest sense of, of disempowering certain, not disempowering, but but sharing the power. Shifting. No, <laughs> shifting. no, 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 shifting the power. Fair enough, shifting the power. Because sharing the power um, is, is what uh, the United Nations tries to do. Right. Um, and I won't go into my full uh, <laughs> writings on that particular subject, uh, but sharing the power uh, basically doesn't work. The idea about lifting people out of poverty um, to be and look like us hmm. actually does completely the opposite. It's an because, ongoing colonial approach. Exactly. Why would they want to look like us? Right. Right. Or do things like us. Exactly. Yeah. Who, who assumes that what we're doing is correct and good? Well, yes, because we have the money and we have the power. Yeah. And again, it rests in power. Well, we've covered quite a bit of ground. Is there anything we haven't talked about? <laughs> <laughs> life uh, well absolutely it, it's it, at the end of the day uh, you know art is only one one bit of life um, and it, it's the bit that I grew up with um, as I said I couldn't help it I just did it um, and, and my thing from 1992 was as I said uh, it was all about the science politics and economics so what could I do as an artist and I'm still trying to find out well, fair enough. Well, I, I encourage people to, there's a website of yours. Uh, I think it's David Haley. What is it exactly? DavidHaley.uk. Okay. Well, I encourage people to, to read your, your reflections and obviously to listen. You might want, people might want to listen to this podcast twice because there's, <laughs> there's nice, nice gems of, of thought and references that, that people could then, I'll try to put some in the program notes, but just so that, uh, uh they can benefit from your experience, right? Because you've you've obviously been uh, thinking about these things for a while and have had your failures as well, I'm sure. And and then you kind of you kind of can see through the muck, right? <laughs> That's why I appreciate the clarity of your. Well, I, I you and others have have um, have created a body of work, which is good because then you can look at the art and it speaks for itself. But also the discourse and just the ongoing conversations that we need to have. Uh, as honestly and as vulnerably with as much vulnerability as possible. Sure. Uh, every time I speak, I feel vulnerable because I'm about to say something that maybe I'm not so sure about, but there you go. It's out there. People can listen to it, agree, disagree, and then we move forward, hopefully together. Yeah, yeah, indeed. indeed. That's the idea. All right. Well, thank you, David Haley, for your time today, and uh, we will uh, talk again, I'm sure. Thank you, Claude. It's really nice to meet you. <laughs> Take care.